the, the, the price can sometimes appear to be lower and it's enticing for people. It's also enticing to maybe just include it in with a holiday. But Kim and I have always been very strong and consistent on this point. Surgery is not a holiday. So if you think you're going to have a, a tummy tuck and then go and sit by the beach the next day and, and that's the end of the story, um, it just doesn't happen that way. Welcome to Keeping It Real, Australia's favourite plastic surgery podcast. Today, we're chatting about destination surgeries. Sure, I get it. I get it. The concept of overseas travel seems like a distant memory, whether it's for a holiday, for work, and especially people going overseas for plastic surgery. But it's a practice that has captured the attention of thousands of Australians and will continue to do so. I'm joined by Dr. Richard Bloom and Dr. Kim Taylor, to delve into the allure of medical tourism. What are the risks? Why do people do it? Is it all doom and gloom? And of course, some firsthand horror stories. Thank you both for joining me today. How are you going? Good. Um, Nice to see you, Kate. Hi, Kate. How are you going? Good. So today we're going to be talking about medical tourism or destination surgeries This is far from a niche experience now. In 2019, over 15,000 Australians went overseas to have medical operations for things like breast augmentations, tummy tucks, rhinoplasty, dental surgery. This was something that was quite enshrouded in stigma but has started to make its way out of that. Obviously, COVID took it out by the knees, but as the borders continue to open these numbers can be expected to return to their former glory. With money really being the truly enticing point, do you think the cheap price has its things to worry about? Great question, Kate. It's always seemed to me to be a bit of a false economy. So there are a lot of hidden costs. So often when patients are comparing our prices with prices of overseas surgery – um, they just look at the maybe the hospital cost, the surgeon cost, or uh, you know, uh, implant costs, but don't take into account the flights, the accommodation, having taking someone over to uh, care for them, so take a carer, um, as well as then the the aftercare costs, which you may then need to have addressed back at home. So. I think it's really important to, to compare apples with apples when you're looking at these prices. So the, the, the price can sometimes appear to be lower and it's enticing for people. It's also enticing to maybe just include it in with a holiday. But Kim and I have always been very strong and consistent on this. Surgery is not a holiday. So if you think you're going to have a, a tummy tuck and then go and sit by the beach the next day and, and that's the end of the story... Um, it just doesn't happen that way. Kim, when you see that these costs can be quite comparable or maybe a tiny fraction cheaper than having them done by a plastic surgeon here in Australia, do you think that cost-benefit is negligible to the risks? Oh, I think that the risks far outweigh um, the benefits for um, what we are talking about today. Um, for our patients, once they've had surgery with us, they, they basically have almost unlimited access to um, either Richard or myself if they need it after their surgery and also to the staff in our rooms. Um, We have follow-up for all of our surgeries for at least four months. 
um, depending on um, how often patients need to be seen. Like if, if they're two weeks, three weeks, two months out from their surgery and they have even a minor concern, they can come into the office and see us. Um, if you've had surgery overseas and you've flown back, then you really have very minimal backup. There's time zone differences. Um, sure, they may have email addresses and, and get good response, but it's not immediate and they certainly can't just pop into the office um, in Thailand or Bali and see their surgeon or the, the nurse that knows exactly what surgery they've had done. So once they're back in Australia, then they may then have to access their own GP multiple times or um, and sometimes then there's some embarrassment as well. It's like, oh, well, I went and did this overseas and I have no backup at home and they're embarrassed to contact other plastic surgeons here if they've got concerns or um, same thing with their GPs because they may feel they may be um, judged when they actually have issues that, that need addressing. Um, and so, yeah, definitely the, the, the risks far outweigh the, the benefits in my opinion. As you mentioned, Re obviously very passionate about post-op care. As appealing as it sounds to just have a cocktail next to the pool and be in the sun, what could you delve a little deeper into the dangers and the risks of not having that in- attentive post-op care? Sure. I think post-op care, um, obviously the surgical and the, the technical details of the operation are the most important thing, but post-op care, uh, I, you can't underestimate how important it is and, and patients have a lot of questions even after we've gone through everything and they've had their surgery. Uh, they have minor things that seem major to them at the time that um, by being seen by either us or our nurse totally can put their mind at ease um, compared to just sitting at home and, and just stressing over it. Um, also, the ability to pick up something early which you can then um, treat and avoid it going further, such as an, an infection or some sort of wound problem. So um, being able to jump on these things quickly, as Kim said, and being able to be seen straight away and uh, compared to let something sort of just escalate until it gets to the point where you maybe need to intervene surgically. I mean, we, we see it even here um, and, and not to sort of pay out on GPs, but we see GP patients who go to their GP thinking for whatever reason they don't want to bother us, or even to emergency departments where they're not used to looking after this sort of these sorts of surgeries, and they they get given bad advice with, with either dressings or maybe antibiotics or unnecessary tests. Whereas if they could just see us for two minutes, it's like this is fine, you don't need to worry, this is normal, this is going to settle down, it's going to look completely different in a month's time, um, just you're on track, keep going. Um, I just saw a patient today even, and she was a, like, she would be, she was a young patient, she would, uh, she'd had some liposuction, she'd, she'd be a common per, patient, type of patient who would go overseas for such surgery. And I saw her at the two-week mark, which would probably be the time where she's probably would have gone home um she had liposuction to her tummy and there, there was sort of some uneven areas which would not be unexpected at the two-week mark following liposuction and you know we, we talked about it we, we uh, looked at it at the time and i said look i my view is this is all just going to settle 
two months later, so if you're an overseas patient, you're well and truly home, you're done. At two months, uh, I saw her again today, everything had improved dramatically. There was now sort of maybe two areas that still weren't perfect. And my, my discussion with her was, this is still improving, you're only at two months, we'll see you again in another two months and reassess it at that point. And then she may even at six or 12 months need a minor touch-up, which gets her a perfect result compared to someone who's had this done overseas, has worried about it for two months um, and then has no sort of solution for her that's not exorbitantly expensive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We, and we can um, easily do a small touch-up in the rooms here, which um, is, is really simple that they can just pop in for half an hour. And um, it's obviously planned, but it's something that, you know, we're so accessible that that, that can be done. Um, the other thing is not just the post-op care, but the pre-op care as well. So if you haven't um, met the surgeon or had an adequate consultation and sometimes even I was speaking to a patient the other day in a different language so there's an interpreter um, to try and get the full understanding and um, expectations and and know exactly what you're getting yourself into when you're only meeting the surgeon um, on the day of the surgery. Um, The other thing I hear sometimes is that um, patients are often upsold procedures on the same day as well so they go for their breast augmentation and then they oh you know well we've got a special deal and you can have your eyes done and maybe your teeth done on the same day as well so it's yeah it's it's a little bit frightening um and yeah our patients can pre-operatively come in and have more than one consultation they get to meet us and you know you don't uh, patients don't always love us and um you if you're committed and you've paid all your money and you've flown overseas and you meet the surgeon you're kind of like well we're not really on the same page but I'm kind of committed to going through with this now um it's uh, yeah you it, it's difficult to back out once you're at that point well firstly everyone loves Kim it's just uh, <laughs> she's been very very important humble. distinction <laughs> thanks uh well I think just to that point I, I've just uh, come from seeing another consultation of a patient who who had multiple areas she was interested in having surgery uh, on. Uh, There were a few curveballs in terms of timing and possible pregnancies down the track. Um, And basically the consultation went along the the lines of, look, these are all the options. You, You need to now go back having had all of the information and reassess what your priorities are because her priorities were not really what I thought was the best direction for her. Go away, review everything that we've talked about, and Kim and I use a a system where patients can access a lot of the information from the consultation once they've gone home, and then come back after you've talked with your partner and discussed everything and thought through everything, and then let's have a discussion about now what your priorities are, having been informed about the procedures. So... That was a more extensive operation, but it, it very easily could happen to a patient who goes overseas thinking, look, I just want a tummy tuck, and then you get there and that's not the best option for you or it's not the best time for you. But as Kim says, you're there, you've paid the money, you're kind of committed, you've flown over, you've maybe flown over a relative and you're, you're stuck there and then what do you do? Like, and come the back fear home. also is whether they're honest about that um, as you two are very transparent in the pre-op if 
the pressures there for them as well. Absolutely. On top of what you mentioned with extensive pre-op and post-op care, is there significant or unique issues with travelling alone? Like as you mentioned, flying after the two weeks, is that a bigger issue for blood clots or anything like that? Um, certainly there's a lot that comes into that and as, as you say um, blood clots is probably the most significant thing with long haul um, travel after um, major surgery um, and don't get me wrong we, we do get patients that fly to see us um, from within Australia um, and but we give them a lot of advice in terms of how long they need to stay here for and what sort of precautions they need to take if they are either even driving three to five hours into the country or um, most flights within Australia are not longer than three hours, so it, it, it's not that really long haul type of flight. But being uh, most of the countries that patients travel to are hot and humid, so that has its own risks in terms of um, wound infection. Who knows really exactly what the surgical standards of the hospitals are? From patients that I've spoken to, they they walk into these places and they seem like they're you know pristinely, unbelievably clean, but. Their standards are different in other countries to Australia, so we have no idea what sort of sterilisation standards there are and air quality control within the operating room. So definitely wound infection is is a much greater risk there. And, yeah, again, the, the lying by the pool in the sun is really just not not reality after recovering from surgery. Um, and if you have a chat with any of our patients in particular that have had tummy tuck or body lift type of surgery like that you know they're really not entirely bed bound but they're house bound and they're not really wanting to do a whole lot for a couple of weeks so if you're stuck in a foreign country with minimal friends or family and access around you it's a bit a bit of a daunting prospect yeah definitely kim kim sort of touched on some of the the potential risks of flying home but there are also risks in being in a long-haul flight and then undergoing an anesthetic so there is there's a small risk of clots in the legs in, in going on any long haul flight, albeit very low. But if you go on a flight and then you've got the start of a clot in your leg and then you have a, a, a longer operation, that may then turn into a clot, which you otherwise wouldn't have had if you were just having the surgery locally. So the mere fact of actually flying to a destination to have an operation could put you at high risk of the actual operation and then all of the potential risks that Kim's talked about after the operation. Yeah, scary. This sounds scary. (laughs) (laughs) You've both kind of touched upon when people come back not being able to quickly and easily access your doctors. I've read online just some horror stories about people flooding the emergency departments back in Australia because they don't have that support system and with quite severe situations like you know losing both nipples or scars bursting do either of you have any anecdotes of failed international surgeries um absolutely i've i've had a um experience with a few different patients um unfortunately um most recently that i can remember is a patient that had multiple procedures so certainly a a combination of a lot more things than what um, Richard or I would do in one go so breast surgery tummy arms and legs all at the same time and unbelievably in someone that was a smoker so um, an absolute recipe for disaster one I would not do one of those procedures on a patient that's currently smoking or been smoking in the previous six weeks 
most significantly were um, wound infections and the, the tummy tuck side of things that lost a lot of skin. So the skin opened up, the skin died back, um, required weeks, weeks and weeks in hospital, skin grafting and then um, further surgery to correct that down the track. So certainly, certainly not an ideal outcome yeah. from that. Traumatic. Yeah. So, and, and as Kim's saying, she alluded to before, these patients are often a bit embarrassed that they've made that decision because they get home, they go, and then they've got all their relatives saying, why'd you do that? Because when you look back at it, it's like, hang on a sec, you're in, a, you're in Australia with one of the best healthcare systems in the world and you've flown to Bali to have an elective procedure. Um, that can be pretty confronting for people. But you often, when you then come back, to go and see someone in private is is very expensive because it's often not covered on insurance, even if you have an insurance. And most of these people are not going to have insurance. That's why they're taking the option. So you end up in one of our public hospital emergency departments where commonly the surgeons who are going to be taking care of you, this is not their area of expertise. So um, I think I've said it on the podcast before, my, my grandfather used to have an, have an expression cheap is expensive so what might seem cheap at the time either through cost or outcome or time becomes very expensive very quickly so so fascinating i'm still traumatized from the tummy tuck story i can't get past it obviously not everything is doom and gloom and disaster with these surgeries as we said fifteen thousand people in 2019 alone went and sure the majority of them don't have horror stories but it's not just scars and wound infections it does extend to the logistics and the record keeping uh, which refers to the record keeping that we spoke to earlier kim did you have any examples of people who've struggled to match up their implants or anything when they've come back to australia uh, yes indeed um, in australia in particular we have a a breast implant um, device registry. So if anyone has an operation that involves putting in or taking out of an implant in this country, then the um, implant is registered. And so uh, that's gone back for, uh, I'm not sure, probably at least uh, the new the new is uh, probably five years, but there's, there's data from at least 10 years prior to that that can be accessed um, and pro- possibly even longer. Uh, we also keep, all of our own records as well. And so I've had uh, patients that have had particularly breast implant surgery overseas and when they've come back um, 5, 10, 15 years later and they either want to have the implants removed or um, changed or upsized and they have absolutely no idea what brand they have, what size they have. So it puts them on a, uh, it puts us on a very back foot trying to um, guess what they have to then base the next stage of their surgery around that um, extremely difficult I have tried in the past to get hospital records mm. I'm from a Thailand hospital and they're not in a language that I can read mm. and even the numbers were it was impossible to figure out what the what the implants were the other imp- important thing about that is with our device registry is that it, there are devices that may have uh, have been used in the past that then are um, shown to be faulty or have problems with them so the that information can be extracted from the registry and patients can be informed um, whether they have 
something to worry about or not. Whereas if you've been overseas, you don't have any records of what you've got, you, you're probably more likely to think worst case scenario about that. And there's one other interesting implant story that I've heard. Not, this is not a first-hand story, but it's from a very legitimate source, is that probably uh, people have heard us talking on the podcast before about um, breast implant surgery and we use a sizer to at the start of the surgery to check whether the, the pocket is right and they clearly have written on them sizer not for implant um, and we use them temporarily they come out and then the real implant goes in and I know of a surgeon in Australia that has taken out one of those from a patient that had their surgery overseas oh. and that was on one side and it was a normal implant on the other side so um, and how, was that just because they were getting their implants fixed that they happened to cut in? Yeah, oh absolutely. So okay. it's kind of like the great unknown of what you're going to find. They could be different brands. They could be different sizes. They could be, uh, yeah, not even a real implant. Interesting. Yeah, Richard, I've, I know you've talked about patients before as well with similar issues. Yeah, and I mean the point, what, what Kim's talking about, those sizes are made out of inferior materials. They're not the companies generally don't charge for them because they're not as expensive as the regular implants. And so to have them in as a long term implant it has potential health consequences to patients. What Kim was talking about in terms of um, issues coming up with implants, this isn't a common scenario, but in both of our careers this has happened twice with breast implants. The first one was the PIP implants which were being used with an inferior type of silicon out of France. And so they all had to be recalled and had to be removed from patients. And then more recently, in uh, September 2019, there was a recall on the um, Allegan implants because of the association with ALCL. And so they had to be stopped, stopped being used. Now, those ones were sort of a little bit different in that the recommendation wasn't to have them taken out, but it would, the recommendation was to stop using them. They were taken off the market. But the problem is, if you, if as Kim said, if you don't know what implants you have in, you, you just think that you've got the bad implants. And so you may be worrying unnecessarily as opposed to being able to ring up your surgeon, come in for a consult, find out exactly what implants you are you have and the issue can be totally put to bed and you don't have to worry, you don't have to have more surgery, you don't need more investigations, you don't have to think about it ever again. So that's sort of a ticking time bomb that someone just wouldn't know and then an issue comes up in five years' time and you maybe have to have implants removed unnecessarily because it's just such a mental burden that you're dealing with. And the converse can be true. (laughs) Someone's like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine, but they may have... Um, an implant that is yeah, not necessarily being recommended to remove it, but um, let's keep a closer eye on that. And if there's any suggestion of um, any change, then be looking at getting them out earlier than you otherwise necessarily would. So if somebody was far braver than I, and despite all of this, still decided to go overseas, what red flags would you say are most important to look out for? Great question. The first thing is, I suppose pretty straightforward. Make sure your surgeon is is Australian and you're having a surgery in an Australian hospital. But that aside, I understand the point of the question. I think you you need to maybe I think you need to 
really look at the costs as we lo- we talked about earlier and actually make sure that there is a significant saving you it, the problem is you just a lot of these things you actually cannot assess how do you assess someone's training when they're from overseas you, you like they could have been trained anywhere they may not have been trained you don't really know you can't really sit down with them beforehand as our patients do and look at their before and after photos with the surgeon and and go through patients who are maybe similar in size and shape to you and have a similar result to what you have so i think it's a it's a really hard question because i don't think there is anything you can you you can't delve into the sterility standards of indonesia for their hospitals from australia you you don't even know the process over here at least here there are standards you can look at there are websites you can look at to make sure hospitals are accredited you can look at the medical board site to look make sure your surgeon is appropriately trained anybody can put up before and after photos they may or may not be that surgeon's work um, so i'm not sure that there is actually anything you can look at that is going to reassure you it's always just going to be a, a cost sensitive decision and and just hopefully people listening to this podcast understand that that's maybe not a, a real benefit and it's it also, um, you can look at anyone's website that's all whiz-bang and makes them look like an amazing surgeon and have a fancy website and f- lots of letters after their name and you know call themselves whatever kind of surgeon that they like to. And um, this the same thing applies for in Australia too, but at least here you know you can look up what are real surgical training standards. So And that's the FRACS plastic surgery, So, which, of course, Richard and I both have. So we are uh, properly trained plastic surgeons in this country. And, yeah, we, we have a website that it possibly looks less fancy than other doctors in this country that um, try to emulate those sort of things. And the same with overseas, that you can't assess their qualifications. And if someone's got a fancy website... It doesn't necessarily mean that they're a good surgeon. Awesome. I think that pretty much covers everything. I've taken away that we don't have the same pre-op and post-op. And then it's a bit like a Jetstar flight in that it seems cheap until you add the insurance, the baggage and the picking the seat. Does that about cover it? And then the flight gets cancelled at the Oh, <laughs> so true. Thank you so much, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate. If you liked this episode of Keeping It Real, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why don't you have a flick through our past episodes? We'd love to hear your requests for future topics, so send your suggestions through to us on IG at Replastic Surgery. That's all for today, and we'll catch you next time for another peek into the world of plastic surgery.